This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Well, thanks very much, Norma, and uh, thank you all for being here. Um, <coughs> I've, um, as Norma mentioned, I've been on the road for, uh, for some weeks, uh, and one of the things that happens when you're on the road, traveling as I am at the moment around the world, is that you get a bit confused about the time of the day, um, the, the clock outside and the clock inside the body are on different sort of schedules. So I hope that, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, that I'll last through the next hour or two without suddenly thinking that it's two o'clock in the morning, my, my body time. It's actually, in terms of time, it's actually 45 years now since I first landed in Japan in the summer of 1962 as a very young and callow youth. Uh, and so now after nearly, well, after almost half a century of engagement with, with Japan, living there, visiting, studying, whatever, um, I find that the more I think about the state of Japan, the more I think about the state of the Japanese state. And this, the book is really the fruit of those reflections. And today uh, I'm, I'm also sort of kind of updating the, uh, you know, the book by saying some things about developments that have happened since I wrote the book. Well, I sense a certain schizophrenic quality, um, and, and I'm not alone in, in thinking that in the, in the Japanese state. In the first half of the 20th century, Japan's identity was emperor-centered and asserted racial uniqueness and superiority. In the second half, following the defeat in 1945, democracy, human rights and pacifism were introduced. But the emperor himself remained and deep questions of Japanese identity were left unresolved. And during the Cold War, uh, that didn't concern too many people in Japan because it was enough that the country cohered around the principle of economic growth. But in the second half of the 20th century, there's also been one other pillar of national identity, and that has been that pillar of dependence on the United States. But as the search for national identity swept late 20th century Japan, many were drawn again by the attractions of that emperor-centered identity of the first half of the century. Uh, and in the early 21st century, most members of the Koizumi and Abe cabinets of 2001 to 2007 belong to organizations that look back to wartime Japan uh, for their inspiration. Organizations within the Diet, for example, uh, with names such as the the Diet Members Association for the Passing On of a Correct History, the Diet Members Association for a Bright Japan, um, the Diet Members Association for Reflection on Japan's Future and History Education, the, the particular organization with which um, former Prime Minister Abe was most closely associated, and the organization known as the Shinto Politics League, the Shinto Seiji Renmei. What's Shinto politics? 
Well, fortunately, we, we know from uh, former Prime Minister Mori uh, in his 2000, uh, I think June 2000 statement, that um, the statement that Japan, what is Japan? Japan is the country of the gods centered on the emperor. Tenno kami no kuni. That this is precisely the view held by uh, those who led Japan into the disastrous wars of the 1930s and 40s. And here it is articulated by Prime Minister Mori. Uh, and then the, the, the core idea uh, to which most members of the, the Koizumi and Abe cabinets and many members of the current Fukuda cabinet uh, belong. Yet at the same time, assigned by the Bush administration the task of turning the US-Japan relationship into a, a mature alliance, Prime Ministers Koizumi and Abe, and most of my paper today addresses their, their governments really, 2001 to 2007. Um, they've done their best to reinforce Japanese military subordination and integration under US command and to transform Japan into the Great Britain of the Far East. And that subjection to American regional and global purpose deepened in, uh, in these last several years, particularly in 2005 and 2006. So, pulled in contradictory directions by their Shintoist national, nationalist pretensions on the one hand, and their desire to serve and to please Washington on the other, Japanese governments have been increasingly identity-torn. The greater their efforts to meet American demands, the more they feel compelled to stress the beauty and integrity of the Japanese tradition. Uh, and under Abe, that leads them to, to call for a break with the American-inspired post-war system, and that in turn irritates the US, not surprisingly. So the contradictions of the post-war Japanese state are not new, but my argument is that in the post-Cold War context, they've surfaced in plain view like a giant iceberg and they have become much more serious than they were uh, during the Cold War. The title of my book, um, um, Client State, is taken from the words of one of Japan's most respected conservative politicians, the late Gotoda Masaharu. Um, Gotoda was core figure in the Japanese governments of the 1970s and 80s. And in 2003, just a year before his death, he referred to Japan uh, by this term, uh, zokkoku. I, I can't, it's so dark here that I'm not sure that you're going to see that, but, but uh, this term, zokkoku, um, a term that, zokkoku of the United States. So it's a term that translates as either vassal state, literally a vassal state, dependency, uh, but in my chosen term, client state. And other respected conservatives, too, have spoken in similar terms. Uh, Kyuma Fumio, who recently was Minister of Defense, um, referred to Japan as, in 1923, in, sorry, in 2003, just on the eve of the, of the Japanese commitment to the war in Iraq, um, he referred to Japan as unable to avoid commitment to the American cause because, as he put it, Japan was, I quote, like an American state. Uh, and Sakakibara Eske, uh, 
the, uh, who in the 90s was regarded as Mr. Yen because of his close responsibility for Japanese financial policy. He refers, in 2004, he refers to the, I quote, the ideology that calls for total support of the United States under any circumstances and which differs little from leftist support of the Soviet Union and China years ago and amounts, he said, to depraved ideological conservatism. Well, outside Japan, uh, such language is rarely heard. And outside my book, I have to say, it's actually very rarely heard. And yet, this is from the conservative elements of very much the Japanese establishment. Uh, so what they're doing is they're borrowing language that used to be the exclusive preserve of the Japanese left and what they're, and in order to address the, what they see as the problem of radical, ultra-rightist neoconservatism. So within the frame of split identity, the agenda of the Koizumi and Abe governments stands out for being not conservative, although they are often described as conservative governments, but radical. Radical. And consequently the unease of conservatives like Gotoda. So to characterize the structures of the Cold War Japanese state that they have attacked, uh, I propose that we conceive of it under two aspects. And I think, uh, I think you, maybe you have the, uh, this, this sheet with uh, uh, this. I just did this this morning, actually, in an attempt to, to try to clarify um, these, these things. So I think that the, the, the Cold War Japanese state um, can be characterized under two aspects, identity, strategy, diplomacy, and political economy. And I coin the terms uh, Yoshida State after Yoshida Shigeru, the Prime Minister in 1946-7 and again in 1949-54 to refer to the former, um, and, the, uh, and Kakue State after the 1970s Prime Minister Tanaka Kakue to refer to the latter. So my argument is that the Yoshida State was one of political incorporation um, though limited and passive in the US-led anti-communist project. And the Kakue state, political economy, uh, was one of pursuit of growth and development under bureaucratic guidance. And what Koizumi and Abe did was to launch a frontal assault on the structures and values of this state system, of both the, under both the aspects of diplomacy and uh, and security and the aspect of political economy. They, would, they, would set out, they set out to demolish and to renew. Koizumi said that he was engaged on a process of reform, as he called it, that was equivalent in scale and significance to the transformation of Japan from feudal to modern state in the 19th century and from militarism and fascism to capitalism and democracy in the 20th. And as we know, he gained huge popularity by his promise to smash the ruling LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, his own party. As for Abe, Abe said that his ambition was to, to put an end to the post-war state. He promised nothing less than the recovery of Japanese independence. Dokuritsu no kaifuku. So the Koizumi and Abe agenda amounted to a simultaneous rewriting 
of all three of the country's basic charters. The AMPO, the Security Treaty with the United States, the Constitution, and the Fundamental Law of Education. They were intent on redesigning the state itself. They would redesign the Japanese state, scrapping the Yoshida and, and Kakue formula, adopting instead a client state formula, is my argument. Their project has also been distinguished by a stress on myth and ritual. Now, the, the, the actual the imposition by law of the flag and anthem rituals follows a, a law to that effect that was passed slightly earlier in 1999, uh, but its implementation has been very characteristic of these recent years. Um, and the insistence on the, on the centrality of Yasukuni under Koizumi, and under Abe, in particular, stress on the aesthetics, aesthetics, the, the notion of beautiful country being his chosen leitmotiv. Um, his book, Utsukushi Kuni-e, I mean, turning Japan into a beautiful country, published just as he became prime minister. So, um, this stress on love, the insistence that the state be loved, is something that not only Prime Minister Abe, uh, but also Japan's leading businessman, uh, Keidanren Chief Mitarai Fujio, agree on. Mitarai's statement at the beginning of this year, uh, urging that workers in Japan should love both their country and their corporation. So from 2007, from this year, 2007, both Japanese state and capital um, were jointly committed to pursuing this agenda. It's hard, I think, it's hard to think of any other country in the early 21st century where citizens and workers are being required to love their state and their employers. But there is, of course, one exception, uh, and that is Japan's neighbor country, North Korea, where we observe the precisely the same phenomenon. These are orientations that were not entirely unknown um, in, the, in the Yoshida state, uh, but they were certainly unfamiliar, and they were certainly little articulated from the highest levels of state and, uh, and business. In its security and defense diplomatic or dimension, the Yoshida state involved um, essentially Japan's subordination to the US in security and international affairs, the acceptance of American military dominance, um, and, the Amer and the American free use of Okinawa, Okinawa the war state that matched and made possible Jap mainland Japan's peace state. The United States undertook primary responsibility for Japan's defense, and in addition to full control of Okinawa, it occupied a chain of bases on um, on Japanese territory, while Japan restricted itself to minimal military forces whose role was limited to the defense of the Japanese islands. This Japanese state was truncated uh, and, uh, and subordinated, but it retained a degree of autonomy. It tended on occasion at least to exploit the American imposed Article 9 uh, to limit or resist demands for total submission. So it was therefore not quite a total client state. 
Its limited sovereignty also had the very great advantage of allowing undivided attention throughout the Cold War to economic growth. So that's really, the, you know, the, as I see, the, the Yoshida state. But the, 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 uh, as for the, the Kakue state in terms of economy, um, this was that, that distinctive formation of bureaucratically directed industrialization and rapid economic development that reached its peak, its fullest expression in the era of Prime Minister Tanaka Kakue um, in the 1970s. It's that phenomenon that has been variously described as the capitalist developmental state, uh, Chalmers Johnson's term, embedded mercantilism, and a whole range of, of, of similar sorts of terms. My own term for this really was the, the construction state. Under that system, Japan's development, seen in the 1960s and 70s as miraculous, or number one, and subject to an unusual degree of bureaucratic guidance, became the envy of the industrial world. And this system was also unusual in the degree of its fulfillment of redistributive, egalitarian socioeconomic functions, to the extent, I think, that it may be considered a Confucian variant of Keynesianism. But to Koizumi and Abe, it was something to be rooted out. So what would they install in place of both the Yoshida and the Kakue states, as I call them? First, in the first place, they both concentrate on the effort to fundamentally renegotiate and upgrade the Japan-US relationship, turning it, in effect, into a full Zokkoku alliance, a full client-state alliance of global scope, incorporating Japan and tying it to the US global hegemonic mission. Their agenda included the establishment of the Ministry of Defense, which took place, of course, earlier this year, uh, the establishment of a National Security Council and a permanent law authorizing overseas dispatch of the Japanese military, and the regularizing of those armed forces as a normal self-defense army under a new constitution. That, of course, remains to be done, but that is the agenda. They have been intent on remaking Japan's constitutional peace state into an ordinary, as it's often called, that is to say, ordinary meaning war-capable state with an army capable of performing a significant regional and global military role, as Washington demands. Piecemeal and de facto progress in this direction, especially during the 1990s, exposed the contradiction with the Constitution's explicit pacifism to the extent that explicit constitutional revision uh, came to be more and more directly demanded by the United States and was endorsed by both Koizumi and Abe. The new security design is best seen in the agreements on realignment of US forces in Japan uh, reached in November 2005 and May 2006, which de facto transformed the alliance into a structural element of the global war on terror and which, empty of content, Article 6 of the Joint Security Treaty of 1960, uh, under which cooperation between the two countries is limited to the defense of Japan and the Far East. Now, interoperability, 
and joint operations posture are key words of the new arrangements. Japanese military subordination and integration under U.S. forces uh, on collective, sorry, under U.S. command are reinforced and the barriers to the active service of Japan's self-defense forces on collective security missions lowered, although not yet completely removed. Others have written recently about this process in terms quite different from mine. Um, um, Michael Green, for example, has a new book um, which, which the title is Japan's Reluctant Realism and that basically conveys his understanding that Japan is uh, not following a client, path, a client state path but being reluctantly realist. And Richard, Richard Samuels in his new book sees Japan as moving towards the creation of a new security consensus um, in which its relations with, uh, with the United States and China will both be neither, as he puts it, too hot nor too cold. Its posture in the region will be neither too hot nor too small. Um, and so on. In other words, a new consensus, but, not, but a, a consensus in which Japan retains its fundamental subjectivity. But to me, uh, I think that I choose to put this in the quite different terms of the pursuit of a client state agenda. The US relationship emerging in this post-Yoshida era Zokkoku state is one that both sides describe as of unprecedented closeness. That closeness, however, has no implication whatever of Japanese influence on US policy or thinking. Instead, it means one-sided Japanese compliance in US designs. No Japanese leader would dare criticize or lecture the US president in the way, for example, that South Korean presidents Kim Dae-jung and No Mu-hyun uh, have done. Their state, the South Korean state, also enjoys limited sovereignty, but they have chosen to loosen the American embrace and to resist full client state incorporation. In other words, they've chosen a quite different path, I think, to, to that of um, recent, recent Japan. Since the goal of turning the US-Japan relationship into a mature alliance was first spelled out in 2000 in the so-called Armitage Report, um, Richard Armitage, um, who then became Deputy Secretary of State and core Asia strategist in the, in the Bush regime, and Joseph Nye. Um, since that agenda, that mature alliance, to create a mature alliance between the two countries was spelled out, Prime Ministers Koizumi and Abe have done their best to comply. And Richard Armitage points out in his various statements on the evolution of the alliance, um, just quoting from a number of his statements over these recent years, Japan, he says, is not sitting in the stands anymore. This is in relation to the Japanese commitments to the Indian Ocean and to Iraq. Japan is not sitting in the stands anymore. It has put Japanese boots on the ground in Iraq. It has come out as a player on the playing field. It has come down to the baseball diamond. But by agreeing to the Pentagon's military reorganization plans, essentially the Rumsfeld plans, um, they, Koizumi and Abe and their governments, had elevated the relationship onto a par with the American-British alliance. And in 2006, <coughs> Armitage um, gave Japan high points for its efforts to please 
uh, by doing this. In February 2007, that same um, um, bipartisan um, think tank group that produced the 2000 Armitage Report produced a new uh, report, the US-Japan Alliance Getting Asia Right Through 2020. Uh, and this report spells out the agenda for Japan to lift the alliance to its next phase. Japan will be required to strengthen the Japanese state, revise the constitution, something repeatedly urged by Armitage and other senior American officials, to pass that permanent law to authorize the regular dispatch of overseas of Japanese forces, to step up the military budget, and to declare its explicit support for the principle of the use of force in settling international disputes. And since you, you know your Article 9, you'll know that this is explicitly a repudiation and a statement of the opposite principle to that which is now um, in, embedded in Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. Abe undoubtedly did his best to deliver on this formidable US shopping list, um, as witness in particular, I think, his steadily escalating pressure on Okinawa to subject Okinawa to the joint American-Japanese military condominium. So the demolition of the Yoshida state and its substitution along these lines, adopted at insistent American request, has thus resembled the process of the late 1940s, when General MacArthur presented Japan uh, with its constitution and basic legal and administrative infrastructure. Sixty years on, Bush officials still treated Koizumi and Abe as subordinates, demanding that they redesign Japan's basic institutions. And those such as Richard Armitage, who have been most blatant in their interventions, are hailed as the most pro-Japanese. What about the, the, the political economy then, the, 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 the Kakue state, as I've referred to the, the Cold War formulation? The Kakue state, this is what was once regarded as the quintessentially Japanese path to economic growth and equity. Well, Japan has now been under in immense pressure for almost two decades now to dismantle this. In the so-called Structural Impediment Initiative negotiations, that began in 1989, Washington demanded that Japan adopt wholesale reform of everything from its budget and tax system to its working hours, stop the Japanese people working Saturdays to, so that it'll be easier for America to, com to compete with it. it was the, this was the context of fear that Japan might be on the brink of overtaking the United States as the world's number one. And the United States insisted that the unfair advantage that Japan derived from its difference or the closedness of its social and economic system be eliminated. The playing field, that concept so beloved of American officials, would have to be leveled. With Koizumi, 2001 to 2006, Washington at last got a Japanese leader committed comprehensively, publicly and passionately to the neoliberal project, with privatization of postal services adopted as his core policy. Attacking the Kakue state 
as the seedbed of stagnation and corruption at odds with globalization, his government promoted a privatized, deregulated, Hayekian neoliberal design, one that was essentially American. And I might, or might even say uh, in this context, um, quite uh, to a significant degree, Chicagoan. Conservatives, in the strict sense of that word, were shunted aside, forced to retire, assassinated, or purged. And the Liberal Democratic Party, the ruling party in Japan itself, was reconstituted. In a way, that, that reconstitution was as dramatic and radical an accomplishment as the restructuring of state, political economy, and U.S. alliance. For 12 months, from September 2006, Abe did his best to follow in Koizumi's footsteps as a reformer, but he proved much less capable of dealing with the contradictions. The fruits of the Koizumi-Abe reform policy of privatization and deregulation, especially of labor markets, are in Japan roughly what they have been elsewhere. The disappearance, the disappearance of the middle class in a society once remarkably homogenous that has become sharply divided between haves and have-nots, winners and losers. The ranks of the poor grow rapidly. Working people's wages shrink steadily. Their pension and welfare prospects dwindle. One million households subsist on welfare and perhaps two to three times that number are without resources or reserves uh, so that they should be on it. One third of the workforce are irregulars whose incomes are so low as to ensure them a place in the growing ranks of the working poor. Working poor is a new Japanese word, incidentally. Below the poverty line, of course. Stress and its extreme form suicide figures soar, setting records for the industrial world. The Japan that in the 1970s and 80s was known for its astonishing degree of worker commitment and identification to the corporation, the land of the corporate warrior, has become the OECD country with the lowest levels of corporate loyalty and one of the highest levels of income inequality. In other words, it looks more and more like the United States. In retrospect, the, the Kakue state uh, that I described earlier, the Cold War um, political economy, the capitalist developmental state, was indeed dirigiste, paternalistic, collusive, and in a sense corrupt. But it was also a successful formula for economic growth, and it was also substantially inclusive and egalitarian. The larger private capitalist corporations themselves, for long, uh, and until the full wave of the uh, the full force of the neoliberal wave swept over them in the past decade, actually looked after their workers and their families and constituted mini Kakue states. So my own interpretation that I wrote in earlier writings during the 90s of this system under the term Dokenkoka or construction state um, was now I now think excessively negative. Um, in that I paid too little attention to the redistributive, both as between regions and between social strata and classes, and the social justice aspects of this system. The current dismantling of the old system 
throws into relief both the negative and the positive aspects of the old system. In retrospect, the Yoshida state, that, that security kind of limited sovereignty state, may have been only uh, semi-sovereign, may have been a, a historically abnormal subordinate state system, may have been akin in many respects to the unequal treaty system under which Japan was incorporated in the global economy in the 19th century. Certainly it could not have continued indefinitely and it certainly merited renegotiation. Likewise, the Kakue state, the political economy, was a particularly effective formula for high growth, but it too had many problems, not least, and here I, I, I withdraw nothing from what I wrote earlier, um, that it, of course it bankrupted the Japanese state and devastated much of the environment of regional Japan. But it is the kind of renegotiation of these, these two sets of, of um, these two kinds of states it's the kind of renegotiation now underway that is problematic. The post-war regime from which Abe wants to, wanted to set sail was also the regime, of course, that, that Washington had set in place a half century ago and that Washington still sees as its model for the construction of democracy. Abe's goal of recovery of Japanese independence would, if taken literally, mean a real renegotiation of the relationship with the United States. And that, of course, would be something highly desirable. But in the name of moving beyond the post-war, he has actually been deepening the dependence rooted in the post-war settlement. The fragility of the Koizumi Abe national identity construct and the historical revisionism on which it rested was exposed under Koizumi by the outrage on the part of neighbour countries at his Yasukuni commitment. And under Abe, when the US House of Representatives adopted its extraordinary resolution rebuking him and his government over the comfort women issue in July 2007, just two, two and a half months ago. So the Koizumi Abe agenda, commonly seen as nationalist, is in my understanding actually the reverse the deliberate subordination of the nation. A neo, or more strictly speaking, pseudo-nationalism that combines structural subordination in the service of a foreign power with exaggerated stress on the symbols and rhetoric of nation. Together with the dismantling of the structures of the Kakue state and the neoliberal pursuit of privatization and deregulation. Neo-nationalism plus neoliberalism. Subordination, uh, even humiliation, um, still since Japan is still subject to occupation by foreign forces six decades after its defeat in war, requires, requires contrapuntally a stress on Japan's pristine identity, its Shintonus. As the national identity is hollowed out and subordinated, its symbols and rhetoric have to be given a compensatory, exaggerated sheen. The more the country is sold out, so to speak, the deeper the subalternality it embraces, the higher that the flag must be raised over it, and the louder and more often that its anthem must be sung. Thus, both Koizumi and Abe had a strong tendency to propagate new understandings of history 
a new past to match the new future that they would construct. In December 2006, Abe reached one milestone of his revisionist agenda with passage through the diet of the revised fundamental law of education, deleting expressions of universal rights and substituting a provision that love of country, patriotism, must be inculcated in Japanese students. Following that triumph, he declared his principal objective to be revision of the Constitution. Now, of course, um, events uh, made, made it impossible for him to have that as the key issue of the elections in July this year, but that was his agenda. And it amounted to a frontal assault on the values and principles of the post-war system. He did get to the point of passing through the Diet uh, a bill spelling out the procedures for constitutional revision, which passed into law in May. Whether he was aware of the contradiction between his eager embrace of subaltern status in the US cause and his call for departure from the post-war regime is moot. Did he really know what he was doing? Uh, it's a question, I think, that will take some time for historians to discuss and decide. What offended Abe about the post-war Japanese state seems to have been precisely its democratic, citizen-based, and anti-militarist qualities. Preferable for him were the Shinto fantasies of a blood-bound, organic Japanese community. The process of clarifying uh, what is beautiful and what is Japanese, uh, to which he gave great deal of attention, that process had the corollary of focusing attention on non-Japanese or un-Japanese and the ugly. In other words, if, if one is beautiful, if Japan is beauty, then non-Japan, other, other than Japan, by implication, is ugly. And therefore, legitimizing discrimination and state encroachment on human rights. Abe was fundamentally both a denialist of war responsibility, comfort women, Nanjing, etc., and a revisionist who insisted on the need to rewrite Japan's history, to make people proud and fill them with patriotic spirit, and to rewrite Japan's post-war democratic institutions. In another national context, he would have been contemned as an Abmenijab or a Le Pen. The more Abe struggled to deliver on the formidable US shopping list, the more he sank in the quicksands of contradiction on which the Japanese state rests. Characteristically, he resigned in chagrin when it seemed that he would not be able to deliver on the extension of Japanese forces to the Indian Ocean that he had promised to George W. Bush. Uh, if you look at the, his, the events in the, in the last week or so of his, of his term in office, um, when he was in Sydney, Australia for the APEC conference, he promised George W. Bush that he would give his all to push this bill through the, through the, uh, through the diet. But when he realized that, he, that that was impossible, he then resigned. And it seems to me that fundamentally he, he, had, he felt that he had disappointed George uh, and that therefore he could, not, he could not justify remaining in office any longer. Japan's fraught identity construction, dependent but simultaneously assertive, fawning yet glorious, can only be captured by an oxymoronic term such as dependent Shinto. Combining unconditional submission to the United States 
with insistence on pure, proud Japanese identity, and grafting zokkoku to aikoku, servile dependence on another country to love of one's own, Koizumi and Abe were performing Japanese nationalism while negating it, substituting servility for nationalism, American for Japanese ways. They appear to have been blind to the steady deterioration of the United States as a global hegemon, whether in military, political, economic, or especially moral terms. In the words of the critic Nishibe Susumu, they were trying to protect Japan's culture by becoming a 51st state. They were therefore acting like nothing so much as the monkey king gesticulating in the Buddha's palm. Now that's a reference that those of you who are familiar with the great Chinese novel, The Journey to the West, the Shioji, um, will, will understand immediately. And those who haven't read The, 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 uh, the Journey to the West, it's too complicated now to, to, to explain. But, um, but such a contradiction seems to me to be unlikely to be sustainable over the long term. Um, I want to uh, add some remarks um, because um, as of now a month or so we have a new government. I've been speaking throughout this paper, I've been speaking entirely about the, uh, the Koizumi Adabe governments, but as you well know um, from September uh, we have the Fukuda, Fukuda government. Is it possible that, um, that the, the client state agenda that was pursued so vigorously by Koizumi and Abe might now be reversed? Uh, is it possible that the, the, uh, the, what I describe as the Yoshida or Kakue frames or some elements of, the, of it may be restored? Is it possible that a new and as yet very imperfectly seen citizen-based democratic polity may yet emerge in Japan? Well, of course, it's too early to, to know. But some things I think we can say. This government, this new government, essentially continues in the line of its two predecessors, replacing only two cabinet members. And the spike in figures of support for it is almost certainly due to public relief that the Abe disaster is over, rather than to positive anticipation of what Fukuda might do. The probability of electoral rout for the LDP in the lower house following the disaster in the upper house for the LDP, the disaster in July, was such that cosmetic change, at least, and a different set of priorities was inevitable. When the LDP was relatively successful in 2001 and 2005, it was because, in the first instance, because of Koizumi's pledge to destroy it. I mean, paradoxically, that, you know, that, 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 the, um, that the Koizumi went to the people on the pledge to destroy the LDP and therefore consolidated it in power. Um, and, and in 2005, uh, again, he persuaded the electorate that he and he alone stood for reform. Um, and the electorate in general, I think, understood reform meaning the continuing negation of the old LDP order. Fukuda can scarcely match that, either of those performances, but somehow the LDP has to redefine itself. Since open avowal of the neo-nationalist and neo-conservative agenda would be politically disastrous. So whether Fukuda's adjustments, the, the, the early adjustments that he's been making, will prove temporary as part of a tactical adjustment, 
or the beginnings of real strategic change remains to be seen. Japan, in the era of the Bush Imperium, Imperium is not the world's only client state. Uh, I, since I come from Australia, I, I, I could go on at great length about other client states. Uh, but the roots of Japanese dependence go back longer, longer than elsewhere. The embrace has been tighter uh, and the stakes are higher. And although the political opposition, the Democratic Party of Japan, the major opposition force, is itself rooted in the same Procrustean old LDP, it has taken some strategic positions potentially of great significance. Notably, the rejection of collective security missions, collective that is with the United States, um, and the insistence on a UN-centered foreign policy. Ozawa, Ozawa, the leader of the, of the Democratic Party, at one stage earlier in his career had actually called for um, the Japanese self-defense forces to be placed in their entirety at the disposal of the United Nations. Now that's not his position today as, as, as party leader, but it's an indicator, I think, of the, of the, of the potentially deep difference in his, his uh, policies from those of the, of the, of the LDP government. If the Democratic Party maintains its opposition to US demands for extension of the self-defense force mission in the Indian Ocean. If it sticks to its priority on bread and butter economic issues over grand postures of Shintoist identity, that could precipitate serious debate on core issues of national purpose and direction. The Japanese electorate, angry at Abe's empty posturing, seemed in 2007 to be receptive to such a message. Insisting on the priority of pensions, welfare, and widening income disparities over the rightest agenda of service to the United States, historical revisionism, Shinto glory, beautiful country, and love. They may yet, that is to say the Japanese people, may yet manage to steer their ship of state away from the client statism of Koizumi and Abe. Thank you. Thank you.